Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. From 2 Corinthians. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, only God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one I will boast, but on my half I will not boast, except of my weakness." But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities, For the sake of Christ, for whenever I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him there. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. Then he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. And then he went about the villages teaching He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Jesus said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons 
and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. When a series of racially charged events took place last year in Ferguson, Missouri, I revisited the tired old town of Macomb, Alabama, and, well, every town and city in these United States. And I reread Harper Lee's classic novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. And now, after another burst of racial violence in Charleston, South Carolina, I am transported again to one pivotal scene in the novel. It's when the white men of Maycomb gather at night and surround the jail where Tom Robinson is staying the night. Tom is an African-American wrongly accused of a crime, and he's being held there. It's the night before Tom's trial. An unruly mob scene explodes and the situation is poised to fly out of control. The angry crowd does not see Tom as a human. They are blinded by rage. At a critical moment, Jean Louise Scout Finch, a petite six-year-old girl, is watching this mayhem unfold. Her father, the attorney Atticus Finch, tells his daughter to run away to go home. But Scout doesn't run and she doesn't fight. Instead, she finds just the right word that becomes a tipping point. The moment that changes everything. Scout looks directly at one of the men in the crowd and says, Hey! Hey, Mr. Cunningham, don't you remember me? I go to school with Walter. He's your boy, ain't he? There was a long pause. Then the big man separated himself from the rest of the mob and squatted down and took Scout by both her shoulders. I'll tell him you said, hey, little lady. Then he said to the men around him, Let's get going, boys. And the mob dispersed. The little girl scout whispered the word of grace. She opened the door to honor and peace that comes from down in the heart and unlocked at least one man's soul, if but for a minute. One girl with just a few words, unlocked the pattern of vengeance and hatred that so defines so much of our world. As popularized by the writer Malcolm Gladwell, the language of tipping point comes from the world of epidemiology. It's the name given to that instant in an epidemic when a virus reaches critical mass and spreads out of control. It's the boiling point. It's the moment when the graph turns completely vertical. Gladwell's book is about how things change. It describes how medical epidemics behave in unusual and counterintuitive ways. It's also about how change occurs, about how one event can lead to 
a whole string of causality that shifts the reality that confronts us. In today's lesson from Mark's Gospel, Jesus fails to reach the tipping point. Among the people of his hometown, with the people who know him the best, in the place where he is most comfortable, Jesus can do almost nothing, according to Mark. He was, as Mark tells us in verse 5, unable to do any miracles there. This is a story of colossal failure. After much initial enthusiasm, the people of Jesus' hometown turned against him and rejected him. Isn't this kind of strange? I mean, isn't this God walking into Nazareth? Jesus, who up to this point in Mark has really impressed people, why he just raised a little girl from dead. In the closing lines of the chapter just ahead, he's cast out demons, he's healed the sick, he's impressed people down at the synagogue with his knowledge of the scriptures and his keen wisdom. But now he could accomplish nothing in his hometown. When he first came home to Nazareth, the people were astounded. But as time goes on, the people know better than to trust this ordinary man. For how could someone like Jesus, a carpenter, the son of Joseph, why he has a string of brothers that everybody knows, ordinary guys, goofy guys, this is not how they expected God to announce the arrival of the kingdom on earth. There is, I think, something appealing about failure in great people that we find very interesting and perhaps even encouraging. Our interest comes not from a perverse desire to see people fail. Rather, it's the irony of seeing people who are so extraordinarily capable in many things fail spectacularly in others. We're astonished at the resilience and inner strength that drives them forward despite their failures. And we're encouraged to see their failure as a stimulus for pushing ordinary beings toward greater accomplishment. When we compare ourselves to great people, they usually seem more like us in their failures than in their successes. Their setbacks encourage us in a curious way. Their brilliance and ease at mastering life's challenges cause us to pause and wonder and question why the few appear to be more gifted than the many. Strangely, their failures fill us with a sense of courage and even redemption. All is not lost when we fail. So what does it mean to have courage in the face of failure in the face of suffering, or even in the face of death. Courage is one of our most familiar virtues. From cowboys to superheroes to gifted athletes to decorated veterans, models of courage proliferate in our novels and in our films and in our stories since it symbolizes so much about us. It's better known as an American virtue than a Christian value. 
since it symbolizes qualities that we as Americans worship. Strength and adversity and strong self-reliance. But despite courage's apparent familiarity, courage has a side that many of us have not thought much about. The side of courage that's revealed in the endurance of great suffering and sometimes even death. This courage shows its real character when our vulnerability is greatest and our own strength is exhausted. Then, as the Apostle Paul puts it, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. The Christian perspective of courage knows that failure, that suffering, and all its horror is not the greatest evil. It is worse to do evil than to suffer it. Christian courage also knows that it need not fear weakness, for it knows that failure and pain can be a cauldron of transformation, an opportunity to set a new purpose, a new vision, a new goal. St. Augustine defines courage as love readily bearing all things for the sake of the object beloved. For courage is to point beyond itself. For love to bear all things, we must have something we love more than the suffering and pain that we fear and feel. Love is the non of courage. Without it, all the bravery in the world is mere gritted teeth. The steady storyline of the New Testament is that Jesus was rejected by his own people. He fails to work successfully among the people who know him the best. The very people who loved him are the people who are most underwhelmed by his work and his presence. Our passage in Mark has two sections. They're set cheek to jowl, so perhaps we'll get the point. The first is the story of Jesus' complete failure in his ministry. The second is an odd story of success. Jesus is going about the villages around Nazareth and Galilee. He's going about with the disciples teaching his way, the way of God in the world. And Mark tells us that they cast out many demons And they anointed many sick people, and they healed them. Signs of success. Isn't this ironic that Jesus, who had been up to this point in Mark, teaching with great power, healing people and making the dead walk again, could do nothing, while the disciples, the confused and confusing, the bumbling, and the lame are so often missing the point, even missing in action, are powerful and effective witnesses to God's presence in the world. We might be tempted, might be tempted to look down our noses at the people of Nazareth for responding to Jesus in the way that they do. But we would miss an important point. For we too disbelieve. We have our doubts about Jesus and about who He is and what precisely he means. 
we too are apt to restrict what we think God is capable of doing in our lives, in our churches, in our communities, and around the world. As Jesus presses His ministry out to more and more people, His experience of failure and rejection shades His instructions to His disciples. Along with telling them to confront the evil in the world, to cast out demons and to heal the sick, He gives them what Cleo LaRue of Princeton calls a ritual of failure when their message is not received. If any place that will not welcome you, and they refuse to hear you as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Shaking the dust from one's feet was a gesture used by pious Jews as they returned to Israel from a Gentile land. It symbolized separation from any clinging forms of impurity. The ritual stands as a statement before God that the townspeople have refused to hear God's word of grace. But it's not only what this ritual does to the townspeople, it's what it does for the disciples and for us as well. It helps them bring closure to a failed initiative and move on from it. The people of God are not to waste their energy and human capital worrying on those who will not receive the good news. Move on, Jesus says. Move on. The rejection that Jesus experiences allows His disciples to know that in Christ, God has entered our human condition in an entirely real and tangible way. Matter matters to Jesus and to Mark. For this is a story that's full of failure and suffering. The disciples are no longer alone in their weakness and their so-called failures, and neither are we. As they go out two by two, as we go out two by two, they do so knowing, we do so knowing that even Jesus, God the Word, God the gift of life, came to His own people and they received Him not. This moment in Mark is a tipping point for Jesus and the disciples. It's also a moment for the church both then and today. It's the moment in which God has given us an awesome power to bind and to loose the force of the gospel of God upon the world. It is we who have been given the devastating potency of sacred words, of gracious music, of wonderful hospitality, of missional service and holy sacrament. It's the instant that we, the people of God, become a tipping point of grace in the world today. Mark says that Jesus called the twelve, sent them out, gave them authority, charged them. It takes courage to bear this truth to a broken and violent world. For the, co- the gospel that we bear in our lives is an offering of truth, not of therapy. Like you, I awoke last Thursday morning to the horrific news from Charleston that a white gunman had found his way and 
to a historic black church. And after sitting with a Bible study group for an hour, he shot and killed nine people who had welcomed him in. The Reverend Clementa Pinckney, Cynthia Hurd, Tawanza Sanders, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Myra Thompson, Ethel Lance, Susie Jackson, the Reverend Daniel Simmons, and DePayne Middleton Doctor. They were pastors, a state legislator, a librarian, a high school track coach, and a recent college graduate. All of them beloved. All of them shot to death by Dylan Roof, a 21-year-old Lutheran who somewhere along the way rejected the gospel of grace and learned how to hate how it is that I could wish that I could stand here to say and say in full good conscience that what happened in Charleston was an isolated event. It was an anomalous action of an unbalanced individual. Something that we haven't seen before. Something that we don't ever expect to see again. I wish that in our gathering today we could express our outrage and denounce Ruth's actions and that we could offer up our prayers for those who were so deeply affected by this tragedy, that we could simply feel perfectly awful about this tragedy and that somehow that would be enough, that we could sing songs of grace and peace and that we could all go home well fed at the table of Christ and well taken care of in our own lives. I wish it were that easy, but it is not. Because you and I know the horror of this hate crime is just one more chapter in a long American tale that reaches back to Harper Lee's Maycomb, Alabama and beyond to every city and town and crossroads in our land. It's a tale that's less about individual action, about people like Ruth, even though though that is destructive, and more about the structural racism that encompasses our shared lives. As a middle-class white man, I'm given the luxury of forgetting that this racism is out there, but it's there in school suspension policies and the mortgage industry's practice of redlining certain neighborhoods. It's in the rise of mass incarceration and it's in aggressive policing actions in some cities and towns. It's in job screening processes that guarantee Caucasian Americans a better chance at an interview than African Americans. Symbols of this system do still stand rather uncritically and observed around us in our flags, in our art, in our sport. It's in our entertainment. It's to this well-maintained system, deeply embedded and committed to the advancement of people who look largely like me, that ensured that we've met Michael Brown and Eric Garner and Freddie Gray and Walter Scott and 15-year-old Dejera Becton this year when they were lying face down on the ground in places like Ferguson or Staten Island or Baltimore or Charleston. It's the system that teaches kids like Dylan Roof about 
fear and hate. Unless we try to fool ourselves into thinking that somehow we stand apart from it, let's be clear whether consciously or not, we live in a system. It shapes us, shapes me, it shapes all of us. If there's reason for courage for those of us who don't want to live through another time like this, it's this, that God goes with us into all the villages and towns of this world. God goes with us when we journey out from this sanctuary. As we sit at the beginning of what appears to be a glorious summer season, as we sit in the middle of of a kind of system that has been created for the benefit of some and not for others. God is with us in this moment and every moment. As we try to dismantle what our ancestors have built and lower the flags and purge the songs and clean up the jokes and take down the portraits that symbolize a violent past, God is with us as we listen to people of color And learn to confess the ways that race is privileged in this and every community, even in this sacred space. God is with us as we're pushed unwillingly toward change. Emmanuel, God with us. God is the first tipping point and we are the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And on and on it goes. There's a magnificent prayer that's often uttered in the black church in Virginia, in my home state, when the people of God are facing tough times, difficulty, and rejection. It's a prayer of determination. O Lord, in this time of uncertainty, strengthen us where we are weak, build us up where we are torn down, and prop us up on every leaning side. We are indeed leaning this day. We could easily be tipped over and broken into a million bits. In his book, The Tipping Point, Gladwell points out that the way that change really happens is quite odd. It doesn't happen the way that we expect or anticipate. Things can happen all at once or they can happen piecemeal or bit by bit incrementally. Little changes can make a huge difference in starting a larger force moving. So it is with grace. So it is with justice. So it is with peace and mercy. It starts small. It can start with a group of people singing and worshiping together. It can start in a churchy Bible study. It can start with friends just out for a walk. It can start while we're breaking bread or serving food or fixing up someone's house. But it always starts. Love, grace, mercy is not an act of personal will. It is a function of the divine grace of God. And it is the tipping point of all the world. Thanks be to God. Amen. And amen. Let us pray as the people of God. On this day, O God, your world is full of glory. Your voice thunders from heavens and flashes 
with flames of fire. We give you thanks that you sent Jesus into the world not with condemnation, but with everlasting love that all who believe in him may have eternal life. Lead us by your Spirit, O God, sending us out to bear witness in the world that all may have life in you and be born anew. In the communion of your Spirit, we call upon your name. So by your Spirit, God, transform our lives. We pray for this, your church, as you have claimed us by water and the Spirit and fed us from the broken bread and the outpoured cup of the table. Send us out in the name of Jesus to demonstrate your great love for the world. By your Spirit, God, transform our lives. We pray for the world. Touch our world with healing. Wash it clean from violence, pollution, corruption, hatred, so that the whole earth may be full of your glory. Transform our lives by your Spirit, O God. We pray for this, your community. Give us strength and bless us with peace so we may know the beauty of your presence and glorify your name. Transform our lives. We pray for loved ones. Deliver them from captivity to illness and death and embrace them as your beloved children and turn all their sufferings into glory. Remembering all that you have done, continue to pour out your power in this, your church, in the world so that you, we may know that you are a work among us through Jesus Christ, our living Lord, who gathered us and taught us to pray and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.